Leviticus chapter 15 this evening. So we make our way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Come now to chapter 15 of Leviticus. The Lord now uh, moves from laws uh, governing the diagnosis and the handling of leprosy and other skin diseases to laws governing personal hygiene and sanitation, uh, specifically having to do with emissions or discharges uh, from the human body. Uh, as with the uh, earlier laws having to do with uh, the diet of God's people or the children of Israel, the purpose of this law is twofold. It has a physical and it has a spiritual purpose. First of all, the spiritual purpose and the, single, the greatest of the two purposes is that these laws were given in order to produce in every area of the child of God's life um, a sense of holiness, a, a reminder that their God is holy, a reminder that they are a child, a holy, to be a holy child of a holy God. And so no matter where they went in life, and sometimes we can look at some of the laws and wonder, that's odd, why would he maybe do this or not do this? But in all of it, no matter where they turned, however major an area in life or obscure an area of life, there was some law related to it that in the obeying of that law, there was the reminder, we are not just anybody in this world, we are God's people. We are to be holy children of, of a holy, uh, holy heavenly Father. So that was the remembrance of it and what it did spiritually. Second, uh, there were very, very practical health benefits to uh, uh, enjoy as a result of being obedient to God's uh, commandments. And uh, many, many diseases is, is just kind of an introduction into this section on uh, emissions or discharges from the human body. We know that today many, many diseases are spread from one human being to another human being uh, by way of body fluids, the exchange and transfer of body fluids. We think about, and he will get into it in the chapter. Uh, this will be PG-13 tonight, by the way. So, but... Uh, one example of where this happens in life has to do with uh, sexual relations. Uh, maybe some of you read the article just this last week in the Modesto B, where they uh, uh, came out with the latest statistics uh, from the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, and it detailed the very, very alarming levels of chlamydia, syphilis, and gonorrhea in the population of the United States of America. The sexual revolution is, is not going as well as, as uh, uh, it's, it's um, you know, cracked up to be or advertised. Over one million new cases of chlamydia reported last year. New cases in the United States of America. Most ever reported in the United States of America. They estimate that the actual level is 2.8 million new cases in the United States. Syphilis is up uh, after a long downturn. It's back up again. Gonorrhea is also up with a very, very disturbing news that an increasing number of people are getting a superbug version of gonorrhea. And that's so alarming to the uh, health officials that they are recommending now that certain antibiotics not be used to treat gonorrhea because the gonorrhea is 
uh, is adapting itself to the antibiotics so readily that they feel that we're in increasing danger of having gonorrhea jump our antibiotic barrier and develop into an untreatable strain. So these are, these are serious issues. Uh, for, for us as a country and us as a world. So when we get into, in chapter 15, when we get into these really rather detailed descriptions having to do with the body fluids involved in human reproduction, we can realize that Jesus, uh, God isn't just talking to be talking here in chapter 15, but that there was and there still is a great need for God's people to be reminded of the importance of holiness in this area of our life, sexual relationship in our life. Another way that diseases were spread, not just through sexual relationships, but so oftentimes disease in the ancient world, even today, spread through um, a disease-induced diarrhea. It's a body fluid. Or a sore on the body that's oozing and it's discharging. Very often, that's a very infectious kind of situation. A lot of diseases spread through the transfer of blood, isn't it? We've seen, and I'll tell you, in my lifetime, so it's in the lifetime of many of us in this room, we handle blood like we've never handled blood before since the AIDS epidemic, right? I mean, we handle blood as if it was a dangerous, life-threatening fluid because of the potential of the, the AIDS virus. So the blood, I remember... It wasn't. It was some time ago. I was downtown and driving up Ninth Street, and there was a guy had fallen over. A homeless fellow had fallen over on to the sidewalk, and a couple of people had gathered around him. He had just done it, and so I pulled over there and to see if I could be of any help at all. And he had really cracked his head open on that sidewalk, and I just blood just streaming right down the sidewalk on things. Young girl shows up, young girl, you know, 20s. <laughs> so, a check. So she, she comes and she's, she's barefooted and she's just, uh, just walking across back and forth, just walking right through the blood. I looked down at that and I said to her, you shouldn't walk in that blood. And, and pretty soon the medical professionals showed up and they told her the same thing. But you see those EMTs get out of that that vehicle and all, and they're putting gloves on, and they've got their body already covered with uniforms, and all. It's the way that it is. There's a recognition. I mean, even as it's got, they didn't have all these studies and all of these hospitals and all these labs in the old days. They just had to take God's God's word for it. Uh, body fluids. So it's important uh, to be holy in the in the treatment and the handling of them. And so when when God. Uh, so God gives them this very, very specific instruction how to, how to safely handle emissions or discharges uh, of bodily fluids for a variety of, of reasons. Now let's just get into it. Chapter 15, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man has a discharge from his body, could be any discharge. Uh, again, it could be uh, diarrhea. Uh, it could be it could be blood, uh, any kind of a discharge. If, when a man has any kind of a discharge coming from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is stopped up by his discharge. So an unnatural 
discharge flowing from his body or maybe some, some kind of a, a disease that's attacked the, the urinary tract or something like that that's producing uh, a, a discharge or maybe even a, a stoppage. Nobody's going to live very long with a, with a stopped up uh, discharge. But at any rate, these things were considered unclean. If that's coming out of a human body, God is saying that's to be treated with tremendous care. All right? Very, very wise, isn't he? He said, and all this, uh, and this shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge, whether his, oh, I already read that, didn't I? Every bed, now he begins to detail uh, the different things that would be made unclean by this discharge from his body, whatever it might be. Every bed is unclean on which he has, who has the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. Just, it's just wisdom. He could, he could just, he could be leaking out some kind of a fluid onto something. Someone else gets into that bed or sits on a chair or something. Now they're coming into contact with it. It's, it's just great, wise care. And whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And he who sits on anything, which he who has the discharge sat shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And he who touches the body of him, so even coming in physical contact with him, who has the discharge, shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. If he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Now this isn't talking like a malicious kind of, of spit. It's a thing where someone is sick, they cough, and there's just this kind of uh, going forth or, or spittle or uh, drool or any, any form of saliva, anything coming out of his body, either end of his body. Is to, be, is to be treated with great uh, care. Any saddle on which he who has the discharge rides shall be unclean. Whoever touches anything that was under him, uh, cleaning up or something, shall be unclean until evening. He who carries any of those things of those things shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. And whoever, whomever the one who has the discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands in water, he shall uh, wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. So you have this recognition of anyone who's treating him, any family member, anyone that's helping him out, come over to help him out in, in his uh, physical disease there's that heightened recognition on their part that I'm in the middle of something that's potentially dangerous and I need to be careful the vessel of the earth talking about kind of a terracotta pot or something that was used for cooking or used for uh, serving water or food uh, the vessel of earth that he who has the discharge touches shall be broken so there is there is a concern here in food uh, handling in uh, food preparation that the disease would not spread by that means we of course have laws don't we where we have laws related to food handlers uh, in order to assure against hepatitis other kinds of diseases it's the same uh, kind of thing so great care there every vessel of wood food was also prepared uh, and and served and vessels of wood they were to be rinsed in water because of their greater value uh, they, they were not destroyed and he who has a discharge 
is, uh, and when he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, so he gets healed, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, seven days of healed condition, going to wash his clothes, bathe his body in running water, then he shall be clean. On the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves and two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and give them to the priest. And then the priest shall offer them. Uh, the one is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering. And so the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. Now it's interesting that if he was cleansed and healed of his, his disease, and he was to offer a sin offering and a burnt offering. It isn't saying that disease is sin, or that a lot of disease is, is a result of sin, but not all of it, certainly not all of it is, not even, you know, remote majority of it is. So, he's not saying that this man, all, all sickness comes from sin. What what this offering of the sin offering is, is an acknowledgement of is that sin or, or sickness has come into the world as a result of sin. That's the origin of illness and sickness in the world. The fall and the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then the burnt offering, it's a consecration offering where a person would rededicate their life to the Lord. Now he has kind of a, a second chance at life. He's been healed. And so this offering of this burnt offering was a way of saying to God, now thank you for the healing and now I want to use my healthy condition for your purposes. I rededicate my life uh, to you. So a beautiful worship of, of God in that, that healing. If any man, uh, verse 16, has an emission of semen, then he shall wash all his body in water and be unclean until evening. And any garment and, uh, and any leather on which there is semen, it shall be washed with water and be clean, unclean until evening. So again we have this uh, uh, discharge from a body. It's a natural discharge and it's a lawful uh, discharge, but it is a discharge and they were to be careful related to it. Verse 18, also when a woman lies with a man, and um, by the way, this means a wife with a husband. <laughs> That's the only recognized uh, woman lying with a man that's recognized in the Bible as, as non-sinful. And so it says, when a woman lies with a man or a wife lies with her husband and there is an emission of semen, they shall bathe in water and be unclean until uh, evening. And so sexual intercourse between even a husband and a wife uh, rendered both partners ceremonially unclean until uh, evening. I think it's very, very important here to notice that this was a ceremonial uncleanness. They were ceremonially unclean until evening. Evening was the start of the new day for the Jews. It is not a moral uncleanness that God ascribes to the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. It is not a sinful uncleanness that he's talking about uh, here. In, a, in other words, the, the, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is, is not sinful. It's not displeasing to God in any way. It's his idea. It's his idea. 
Right from Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2. The physical relationship, not only for procreation, but for pleasure. It's his idea. Even before the fall, everything was described as very good. That was already in, in play on things. And, and so, and very good even afterwards for God's uh, purposes. The New Testament, in terms of our attitude toward that physical relationship, so nobody looks at it as being some kind of terrible thing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable among all, and the, the marriage bed undefiled. Talking about what happens between a husband and wife in, in, on, their, on their bed. That's honorable in the sight of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 3 and 4. Let the husband render to his wife the, doeth, the affection due her. Talking about the physical relationship. And likewise also the wife to her husband. She can't have a headache for years. Uh, so the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And by the way, the Frauding is very, very loaded in the other direction, too. It's a real problem. That's why God addresses it in the Word of God. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And I think that one of the things that this did was it just simply reinforced the fact that an exchange of body fluids has occurred and that the relationship between a man and a woman on a husband and a wife wasn't a casual activity. It, it wasn't like going out and getting an ice cream cone. The physical relationship between, it, it, between it, as God intends it to be within the confines of marriage, which is the only place it's to be expressed, is sacred. It's holy. I'd like to say to every young unmarried person in this room, let that standard just raise as high as it can in your life. The physical relationship, that is a sacred thing. And it is to be expressed in a very in the, in the confines, the safe confines with which God declares that it should be. You look at the um, and uh, and I don't mean to offend on this. And, and I know that sometimes people can be hurt because a, a lot of uh, people in the room, they come from a, a very immoral background. But if I, if I can't speak against any sin that we all come from, then I don't, I'm not going to have much to say, right? In a room with more than four people. But uh, every once in a while they'll come out with the statistics and they'll talk about young people and older people and all these different things about, you know, how many sexual partners they've had in life and these kinds of things. And the numbers are staggering we are not dogs we are not dogs we are human beings created in the image of God and as Christians the standard is doubly important because our witness is tied to it I hate what the world and entertainment and the devil has made of, of this relationship. How he has spoiled something beautiful when it's viewed as something sacred and just turned it into anything anybody's feeling at a moment in time. I think it's important. And that, that's one of the things that this would reinforce in God's people 
that this isn't just some something. We're engaged in something that, that is, is sacred uh, here. Now, notice in, in verses 16 through 18, he deals with men there. He, he, he deals with the husband. And then we're going to see here in verses 19 through 24, he's, he's going to be uh, addressing the, the, the women having to do with, with the wife. And so this, all of this has to do equally with both sexes and, and their uh, respective parts in the reproductive process. And there's the reminder here from God that this reproductive process, this reproductive act, this wonderful thing that's created by God, it has the potential to result in conception and to produce a child. The, uh, and, and, uh, and unfortunately in our, our current condition to produce uh, another sinful human being. <laughs> So King David wrote, and I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 51, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now David isn't saying that the sexual relationship between his father and his mother was sinful. He's just merely observing the fact that the only thing that sinful human beings can conceive is more sinful human beings. And, and so there would be that recognition. This has been wonderful. This is a lawful thing between a husband and a wife. But there is that recognition that this could, what we have just done, could produce a child. It could bring another human being into this world. And are we willing to be responsible for the consequences of this physical act? So it added, what I think for our culture is very important, it added a little bit of sobriety to the sexual relationship. It caused them just to stop and to think, this can produce a human being. Now are you willing to take responsibility for that? And if you're not, even as a married couple, then what business do you do having, uh, having this with, with that kind of, of potential? And, and so it, it, there, was, there was just a maturity, a sobriety that didn't take away the joy of it, but there was just a sobriety about this act. It's not just about doing this. this the consequences of this can go off in all directions. And are we going to be mature about this part of, part of our, our, our life? And so all of this is just designed uh, to keep them conscious of God, conscious of holiness in this area uh, of, of their lives, which isn't a bad thing given the fact that our culture has done a, you know, a 180 and completely in the other direction. Verse 19, if a woman has a, dis, uh, has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, so we're talking about her monthly period here, she shall be set apart seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean uh, until evening. Now again, notice her, this natural flow of her body, her place in the reproductive uh, you know, uh, kind of scheme of things related to man, nothing sinful about that, nothing wrong uh, about that 
in, in, in God's eyes. So there was just, it was not a, a moral uncleanness, not a, a, a sinful uncleanness. It was just a ceremonial uncleanness. There's blood flowing from my body and I need to be careful about this. So she would be unclean uh, during those seven days of her period. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. And everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in uh, water and be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed or on anything on which she sits, uh, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if a, uh, any man lies with her at all, so talking about her husband, so that her impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which uh, he lies shall be unclean. So uh, later on in the law, uh, and one never knows how to go uh, in depth, how far in depth uh, in chapter 15, but uh, the, later on in the law of Moses, God absolutely forbids uh, sexual intercourse on the part of a man and a woman during the seven days of her period. That was forbidden. This seems to be talking about uh, the fact that they're involved physically and, and then as a result of that, uh, it produces the onset of her period. Then he becomes unclean for seven days. Interesting that God would say then for the period of, of her period there that there was not to be any sexual intercourse. And I don't know if God has just uh, looked at, you know, his daughters and just said, listen, you're dealing with enough this week. I'll say no for you. Uh, I, I, I mean, we have all kinds kinds of products today, don't we, for personal hygiene and different things. They're in a very ancient, primitive culture and all, and so uh, God just says, I'll, I'll take that off the table, that'll be my bad, and uh, we'll... Um just obey me there. If a woman has discharge, uh, a discharge of blood for many days, so this is a, a discharge, an unnatural discharge from her body that goes beyond her period, other than the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge uh, shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as a bed of her impurity and whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity whoever touches those things shall be unclean and he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening now this passage gives us tremendous insight into a very famous event in the ministry of Jesus where a woman came to Jesus she remember clutched the hem of his garment and she was healed. We're told in that passage what her particular physical need was that she had a flow of blood, an issue of blood, just what we're talking about here where kind of her period never stopped for a period of 12 years. 12 years. And can you imagine what her iron levels were? I mean you just think about it. I, how I mean, that, that kind of a thing. How tired she must have been, how desperate she must have been. She was really up against it physically, 
She spent all of her money, it said, on doctors trying to get help. Nobody could help her. So financially, it hit her. Physically, she's wiped out by this thing. But we also see that kind of socially, that uh, everything, anyone she would touch, anyone that would touch anything that she had touched, would be rendered unclean ceremonially. That's why when she fought through a very large crowd... (laughs) To come up behind Jesus and grab the hem of her, her garment, uh, Jesus' garment, she said, if I can just but touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Tremendous faith. She touched it. She was immediately healed. She knew she was healed. You just feel it in her body. Jesus turns and said, who touched me? The disciples, who touched you? There's a thousand people around you. Who touched you? You know, and and uh, so he, he said, no, "I felt virtue." wasn't just I didn't. I'm not talking about being jostled. Someone touched me with faith. I felt virtue go out of me. And he turns to her, and when he turns to her, we're told that she was trembling in fear. And one of the reasons was was because. She had made ceremony unclean. We don't know how many people that she touched on the way to get to Jesus. And Jesus, of course, blesses her and sends her uh, on her way. So it's these kind of things as we learn the Old Testament that kind of help us to appreciate the things that are in, uh, in the New Testament. And uh, so in verse 28, but if she is cleansed, so she uh, experiences a healing of her discharge then she shall count for herself seven days and after that she shall be clean and on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and then the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness and thus You shall separate, he kind of recaps everything, you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for him who has, for the one who has a discharge, and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby, and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity, and for one who has a discharge, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. Chapter 16. Uh, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of uh, the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, uh, we read about that earlier in, in the, the book of, of Leviticus here, when they offered profane fire, <clears throat> excuse me, before the Lord and died. A little bit of an introduction. This chapter 16 is uh, probably the most important chapter in all of the Old Testament. It, it certainly is a description of the single Um, highest and holy day uh, of the Jews under the Old Covenant. And what he's going to talk about now is he's going to give them the law for the Day of Atonement. Most of us perhaps in the room have heard about the Day of Atonement. Uh, The Jews call it Yom Kippur uh, today. And so this is the, he's going to describe all of this. So most important day of the Jewish religious uh, calendar. It was a day when the high priest 
would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel as a whole. They had all of these smaller sacrifices, burnt offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, that they would offer for their individual sin. This was an offering that was made for the sin of the whole nation. If they kind of sinned collectively, or it just covered all of the sins that didn't get handled with individual uh, sacrifices. Do you, do you ever commit sins and you, you, you can kind of remember the bigger ones in the day, but you can't remember all of them? Sometimes people get in that, they say, they'll read where the Bible says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They think, is a brand new Christian, i got to remember everyone and tell it to him. Listen, you don't have the time, God has the time, but he doesn't want to hear it. Uh, to lift up every single sin, you know, we lift up what we know we, we've done wrong, the sins that we're conscious of, we ask forgiveness of it, anything that God brings to our remembrance. But the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of the sin in our life. Does it, and that doesn't make us bigger sinners. We say, well, I'll just go out and sin, do whatever I want, because Jesus just would take care of it. Nobody that has a, 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 a reverential relationship toward the Lord is going to use His grace or His sacrifice. And, in that way, use it as an excuse uh, to sin. So this covered all of the sin uh, that, that they, would, they would commit. And uh, so it would provide them, the reason it's called the Day of Atonement, it would provide them with atonement from one year. And atonement means at one mint with God. It, 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 it spoke about uh, their personal relationship with God. This sacrifice allowed them, made them holy enough for a relationship with a holy God one year at a time. And all of it is a picture of Christ who is going to come into the world and provide us with a greater atonement, an atonement that doesn't just have to be renewed every single year, but an atonement that will outlast this life and the life uh, to come. But th So on the Day of Atonement, and it was uh, the only day of the entire year, the Day of Atonement, when God allowed anyone to enter into the Holy of Holies of the Tabernacle. Now remember the Tabernacle, kind of a rectangular uh, building, and uh, one-third of it was the Holy of Holies, a cube. Then there was another section that kind of led. You'd come into the tent, and you'd go through two-thirds of it. That was the Holy Place, and then there was the Holy of Holies. You could only go into the Holy of Holies only one man, the high priest, could go in only one day out of the year. <laughs> That's all the access that they had to it. And only after offering a sacrifice for his, his own uh, sin. The two great themes of, of the Day of Atonement is access. It was a way for them to maintain access uh, to God and also uh, forgiveness. And so... All of this, the sacrifices offered on the Day of Atonement, they provided people, uh, the Old Testament uh, Jews, with an Old Testament forgiveness, an Old Testament uh, at one meant or relationship with God until Jesus could come and provide a greater access. You remember that when he said, it is finished and he died on the cross, that uh, great curtain veil between the holy place and, uh, and the, oh, the holy of holies in the temple torn from top to bottom. That's the kind of access he's given us. Anytime, anywhere, access to God. 
because of his sacrifice. And so it, 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 uh, it, it, it spoke about this access and forgiveness under the old covenant and inferior access and inferior forgiveness that Jesus would come then on the scene and provide us with all that that was just a picture of. And, and so it all speaks of him. So the Lord said to Moses, verse 2, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place, the holy of holies, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So he says, tell, tell Aaron, he can only come. Can't just come in that holy of holies any old time. Just one can only come in just one time, just one single day uh, out of the year. And thus Aaron shall come into the holy of place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. And this is uh, talking about the sacrifices that, that uh, Aaron would have to uh, offer for his own forgiveness. And uh, so this was what he was to bring. And he shall put the holy uh, linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. So he says, uh, he says, Aaron, this is what you need to bring as a sacrifice for you and your family. His family was his immediate family, but it spoke of the priests. And then, Aaron, here are the sacrifices that you need to bring in order to offer for the nation of Israel as a whole. And he speaks about their, them there in uh, chapter 5 is uh, verse 5 very interesting to me in verse 4 because for Aaron to go into the holy of holies on the day of atonement he was to only wear these linen garments very very humble uh, simple garments now if you're anything like me God bless you <laughs> poor thing testimony <laughs> to God's grace but you would think after we've been reading for these months, and remember a, a while back, we read about all of the garments of the high priest. I mean the hat and the crown and the, and the robe and the vests and, the, and, and all these things. And they're made of fabric that have gold thread in it and incredibly uh, valuable fabrics gold and gems and, and uh, priceless gems that all a part of the whole thing if you're like me you'd think wow okay God put that whole kind of thing together that speaks about Christ and if there's one day that that high priest ought to wear that all of that is on the day of atonement when he goes into the holy of holies but God says don't wear it in there take all that off and I want you to come into the Holy of Holies on the day of, of atonement here and, and, and I want you to just be as you perform this act for the, for the people I want you to be clothed in the comparative humility of just simple linen garments why would he do that? it's a picture of Christ it's a picture of Christ our high priest 
who laid aside the considerable glory of heaven and he humbly clothed himself in human flesh to come and provide us with atonement at one moment with God. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I think about the cross and I'm so humbled by the cross. Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. I tell you, I, I love to meditate on that. Think about Him. But I'm also very, very humbled by the fact that He was willing to leave an indescribable glory in heaven just to take on human flesh and become kind of injected into this sinful fallen world just to come here at all out of a love and concern for me and for you just very very humbling and one day as a Christian we're going to see that glory of heaven one day we'll be there we're going to cast crowns for the Lord we're going to sing it's going to be something. And I think only then, I mean we see through a glass darkly now, don't we? But one day we will see what he left just to come to this world long before he even died upon the cross. I love it as, as Jesus and his ministry took James, uh, James, Peter, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they saw Jesus transfigured into his glory, I mean, Peter, uh, they didn't know what to say. And so Peter said something. But, um, but he saw the glory of Jesus at that time. Jesus, and it, to me, it's one of, of the, my favorite verses in, in all of the Bible. And my favorite verses, whatever one we're talking about at the moment, they're all, they're all so good. But when he was praying on the night before the cross, John chapter 17, that great high priestly prayer, and he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the earth. And so just speaking, saying, uh, Father, I can't wait until they're in heaven with me and they see the glory that I left to come here and that glory will then be their portion also. So just as, as the high priest would be clothed in his high priestly garments, uh, uh, it, uh, he'd, he'd wear these, these linen garments in order to do this work of atonement as we see a little bit later in chapter 16 when he gets done offering these sacrifices he puts all of that glory back on. He puts the former garments back on. All a picture of Jesus, who after he had provided for our atonement, was ascended into heaven, back into his former glory. I tell you, I love the Old Testament. I love the, what it does for us in our understanding of the word of, of, of God. And, and so, uh, verse 
6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering. He's going to kind of give an overview of the ceremony here. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and shall offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, that's the one that's going to uh, get out of this alive on, in terms of what it represents shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. Alright, now the details of what he's just described. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself. So there's this constant recognition in Aaron and it's good in any leader associated with God's work. You are just a sinner uh, serving other sinners. So don't get this big idea that you're better than everybody else. And, and so he had to offer a sin, an offering for his own sin uh, before he could even do anything for the people. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bull as the sin offering which is for himself. So he had to offer that sacrifice uh, for himself. Address his own sin before addressing the sin of the people. Now, um, again, the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, focuses on this in a very important uh, way because he brings out the superiority of Jesus as uh, our high priest uh, over the the high priest of of the Old Testament and uh, uh, because the Old Testament priest always had to spend some amount of time addressing his own sin. Jesus never has to do that. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. For such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, was fitting for us who is wholly harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then the sin of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So the high priest under the old covenant had to be cleansed from the pollution of sin before he could function as a mediator to offer the sin offering for the people. But because of Jesus' sinlessness, he didn't have to do it. In other words, sinlessness is a higher qualification for high priest than a high priest that has to be cleansed by sacrifice. The rather the book of Hebrews, his great issue is Jesus is better. He is better than everything, even the Old Testament uh, high, high priest. So one of the great things about a sinless high priest is he doesn't have to spend a moment's concern upon himself and his own sin. He can give his undivided attention to the people that he is serving and bringing into relationship with God. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus does for us. And then he shall take verse 12 as he, he offers the, the offering for his own uh, sin. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense 
on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. So he goes, he, he actually on the day of atonement, he goes into the Holy of Holy three separate times. Alright? Now those of you who say, listen, I don't, we don't need this kind of detail. There are four other people in this room that care about this. So you be a servant to them. There were at least four people who thought, three times? No kidding. And they were tempted to write it right there in the margin of their Bible And when I came to their defense. Would you four go ahead and just raise your hands? You were very, very interested. And I see those hands. All right. Maybe even more than four. Okay. God bless you. All of you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. So... So he'd go in three different times. One of the times he would go in and he would offer this incense. And he would offer it. And you've got the, whole, you've got the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that's there. It's the only furnishing in the Holy of Holies. And he would offer it and this great cloud of incense would occur over, over the, the mercy seat. And it represented the prayers of the people. And it, and it represents how God views our prayers. He views them as something that's beautiful, something fragrant to him. What it probably, uh, a part of what it represents, is this high priest every move he's doing on that day you've got between two and three million Jews at this time on this exodus with with him on the way to the promised land I mean there people were crowding up to be able to see every movement what could happen what's he going to do here and now and all of of this all the way through their history so what you would have is he'd go in and he'd offer this as a representation of all of the prayers that were being offered by the people outside for their own sin, forgiveness of their sin, worship being offered to the Lord. So they're out there praying, and this in, in part represents that. And then he shall take some of the blood of the bull that was for his sacrifice, of his, his personal sin and of the family, his own family, sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, which is the, the east, uh, was the front of the ark and, and pointed toward the entrances. And, and then before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he shall, having done that, and he comes back out, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. Now this is for the people, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Here's the reason. Uh, in what that the the, uh, the 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 blood of, of the, the goat represented, so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions for all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. It was God's way of saying, you offer this goat, this part of the sacrifice, you offer that in, in order to allow for another year a sinful people to approach a holy God. It was, it, what, the, what the first goat represented was God making a way of access for sinful men to have relationship with God. Now it's interesting, I forgot to talk about, uh, mentioned it earlier. You might think I say everything that I know. Uh, mostly I do, but I forget stuff too. But, but back early when it talked about the sin offering for the people, and, it, and um, in fact, let me just, in verse 5, he said, 
He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two goats, kids of the goats, as a singular sin offering. So, though there are two goats being represented, and each one of them has a part in this ceremony, they constitute one sin offering. Uh, It took two goats to represent the full work that Jesus was going to come into the world to do for us. But what did the first goat represent? Access. Access. God, uh, 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 the necessity of a sacrifice in order for us to have access. For sinful man to have access, a relationship with a holy God. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when the high priest goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. So no other priest allowed in the entirety of the tabernacle uh, at that time. Only the high priest could go in. Jesus was the only one that could provide this for us. And he shall go out to the altar which is before the Lord and make atonement for it and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel seven the number of completion and so it talks about a complete forgiveness a complete atonement that's been uh, being made as a result of the sacrifices now, this is what he was to do with the second goat that, that, that was a, a, of the twofold, uh, you know, uh, representation of this sacrifice. When he's made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. So this is being done publicly, so many people around. And then confess over it all of the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all of their sins. So this, this offering cover, brings, provides forgiveness for Everything. It's a very, very large description of, uh, of, of what is covered by this, uh, this sacrifice. Just as Jesus, there's no sin greater than Jesus' forgiveness, no sin greater than the forgiveness that's found in, in His blood. It's important for us to realize that, as, as, especially as we come from a sinful background, to come to know the Lord, to know there's hope in someone, there's hope for forgiveness, there's hope of acceptance, and a relationship with God, and there is. So he was to to confess all of these, putting them on the head of the goat, and then send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself, so they they have symbolically transferred the guilt onto the sacrifice, uh, a living sacrifice. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities and go into an uninhabited land. They would just take it out into the wilderness. Now, it's interesting they used a goat. They didn't use a dog. You know why? Because the dog would be back in the camp quicker than the man that took him out would be, which would ruin the symbolism. You take a goat out in the wilderness, and it's out in the wilderness. It's not coming back into the camp. So this isn't Lassie. Uh, so th- the idea is you'd take that goat, and, and you picture it. He, he would pronounce the sin on him and, and all of that. Now this goat is going to be taken out into the wilderness by a man and left there, and it symbolizes forgiveness. 
The one symbolizes access to God. This one represents forgiveness, that God has now taken our sins and He's separated them away from us so that we'll never come into contact with Him again. That's what that goat represented out there. Sin separated as far as the east is from the west, David would write in, in the Psalms. And so that's what it was, that was, it was, it was representing. Edersheim, a great uh, Jewish uh, writer and historian, uh, he wrote about the fact that as, as time went on, they would set up kind of a relay system that when the goat was taken out into the wilderness and then released, that somehow there would be a signal, a signal, a signal, a signal, a signal, back into the camp, it's released, our sin has been separated away from us, Yay! You know, I mean, everybody just celebrating the imagery of it. And uh, I don't know about you, I'm pretty excited that my sin is separated from me. I am never, ever, I am never going to have my sin thrown in my face by God. I'm never even going to have it mentioned. It's forgiven. See, Jesus does the superior thing. That second goat represents Jesus, but Jesus is better. He doesn't, he doesn't just take and uh, provide a forgiveness and a, a, a kind of a physical separation that's symbolic and all. The Bible says He washes our sin away. Now when you wash it away, you, it's gone. And that, that's what He's done. So I'm not, I'm not going to have to answer for that. None of us are as Christians. And so the imagery, the twofold, the one goat representing access uh, to, to God, the second representing forgiveness. Jesus has provided the ultimate for us on, uh, on both fronts. And, and so Aaron, verse 23, shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he'll leave him there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, his, his garments of glory, come out and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering for the people, make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall offer on the altar. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat, shall wash his clothes and bathe his water, his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp and they shall burn, um, they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh and their offal. And then he who burns them shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water and Afterward, uh, he may come into the camp. This is a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. So, this day of atonement, it is on, on this date, uh, the seventh, tenth day of the seventh month, which lands usually in our October, November of our, our calendar. So you'll, sometimes you'll hear on the news the Day of Atonement or something if you, if you go on the Jerusalem Post or something like that and, uh, and are exposed to it. Notice that as a part of this offering, they were also to afflict their souls and do no work at all. In other words, there was a, it wasn't just to be this mindless ritual. Okay, he does this and this and the, and the goats and the this and that and everything. All right, we're clear for another year. Uh, they were to afflict their souls and, and do no work. They were to take some time and really think about what this represented. The reality of it. 
that what God had just done for them. And, and it, they were to be sober about it and afflict their souls related to it. They would, typically they would fast on, on that day related to it. And, and just that time to just stop and think about, wow, what God has, has done for me. I'm so humbled by it. Lord, I'm sorry for what my sin has cost you and caused you know, to happen to you. That kind of, of a connection with the event. And they were to do no work. Why? Let it sink in. Take some time to let it sink in. What God has just done for you today. Communion does that for us too, doesn't it? To just stop and let it be reminded, let it sink in. What God has done for us in Christ Jesus. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict, afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes and the holy garments. And then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. In other words, when Aaron died, then his son that would become the high priest, he had the authority to do the same things. And this shall be an everlasting statute for you uh, to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded uh, Moses. And so the day of atonement. Atonement could only occur through the priest that God has appointed, through the sacrifice that God has appointed, through the way that God has appointed, just as salvation can only occur through Jesus. The two great themes, the atonement or the access that we have to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the forgiveness that is ours because of Jesus. And I want to add one other thing to this. One of the things that I really love about chapter 16 is it gives us a sense for the holiness of the Holy of Holies. It represented the presence of God. Only one man, the high priest, could only go in one day out of the year. Go, wow, how holy is that? And yet when you go into the New Testament, and, P, and, and Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he said, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? When he calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit, what the, the word that he uses there means the Holy of Holies. Christ has found a way to make us into the Holy of Holies. A person that God can live inside of by His Holy Spirit. It is an amazing thing to realize that we're not only forgiven, we're not only saved, but that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We possess on a daily basis things that people in the Old Testament could have never dreamed of being a human being's portion. And Christ has made it possible for all of us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And I know...